This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. And it is actually a hot question because it's about temperature. <laughs> we, uh, I came in this morning and Claire Allen, one of our producers, uh, got, a, got a, a wonderful, colorful story about how in our office there's a sort of an ongoing temperature war because some people like it warm, some people like it a little cool, some people like it, well, and you, you know the idea when you share a workspace with individuals, you know, somebody's going to come in and uh, flip the old temperature up or down and on it goes all day long. <laughs> So uh, to solve or help solve where we're going to end up with uh, this particular in-house temperature war, uh, we decided to call the people at Hydro and go, okay, so just so we have some kind of benchmark, what actually is the ideal or recommended temperature for indoors and uh, for being in the workplace or being at home watching television in the evening, BC Hydro says the recommended ideal temperature for your furnace setting is 21 degrees Celsius. If uh, I'm trans- going to translate this now to Fahrenheit, and the reason I'm doing that is because in our house, we have an old furnace, and its control is still in Fahrenheit. That 21 degrees Celsius is 70 degrees Fahrenheit, 69.8. So there you go. If you've got an old-fashioned banger of a thermostat in your house that's still got Fahrenheit readings, uh, according to BC Hydro, you'll want to set it at 7. We generally set ours at 72. Uh, or if you have a, a modern, <laughs> modern, <laughs> Celsius has been around since the 70s. Anyway, if you have a modern furnace with a Celsius a control panel, you want to have it at 21 degrees. So the question of the day is, what's your ideal temperature in the thermostat at your place in the winter? And here are the options. 10 to 15 degrees, 15 to 20 degrees, 20 to 25 degrees, or maybe you're just a heat magnet and can't live without it. You want things 25 or over. There you go. Uh, Question of the day is easily answerable. It's a numerical response. But anyway, just as a benchmark for BC Hydro, uh, they say 21 or 70, is ideal. Joined on the line by Peter McKay. Mr. McKay is a well-known conservative uh, member of the former Harper government, uh, member of several, uh, held, holding rather, several cabinet positions while in the, the Harper government. He's the uh, last leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, which of course merged with the Canadian Alliance back around 2003. Uh, a couple of years ago, turned down an opportunity to run for the leadership of the Progressive Conservative Party of Nova Scotia. But now, a couple of years after that, is uh, in a position and has declared his position to be running as a candidate for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada. Mr. McKay is in Vancouver. Peter, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Sterling. It uh, feels a little bit like the Maritimes here today with your weather. I was just going to say, no thanks whatsoever for bringing the East with you uh, (laughs) weather-wise one little bit. Well, I think uh, the drifts would be piling up if it was truly maritime weather. But uh, it's look, it's Canada. It's winter. This is what we get. There you go. So let's talk about uh, Peter McKay, the candidate. Uh, I wanted to, first of all, ask you, because you used a line that was so widely quoted after the defeat of the Conservatives in the last election. You talked about the party and Mr. Scheer having uh, had a breakaway on an open net 
and missed the net. There wasn't a voter in the country that didn't get the analogy. You've had a few months since that statement. How do you translate that now into why they lost? Well, I think, Sterling, it, it was it was an honest assessment of the conditions during the election campaign where we, uh, the party, had a lot to offer Canadians. We had a platform, I think, that was thoughtful, that was costed, that should have been attractive to Canadians. And there were a lot of issues, let's say, that the Prime Minister was dealing with both during the campaign, but clearly before that, uh, that were affecting the economy, that were affecting people in their daily lives, that were affecting our relationships with other countries. There was a very, I I would describe it as, as quite detrimental record that was apparent for all to see, and yet we still were not able to to keep a, a sports analogy, get the, the ball over the goal line yeah. and, and win the election. And so uh, it was, uh, I guess, having spent a lot of time in rinks and played sports my whole life, that, that scenario translated into the statement. I don't regret saying it. I think we need to be honest when we assess our performance and, and then learn from it and, and do better the next time. It might have been a little raw. It might have been still uh, too soon to make that assessment, but I think conservatives have to be honest with themselves, and that's what I was trying to do. Yeah, it was also hilarious, too. Uh, By the way, were you surprised or as surprised as many of us at how the Conservative Party machine allowed itself to get bogged down on minutiae like pride parades and so on? Nobody was talking policy, Peter. Yeah, and that's what I hope uh, in the course of this leadership campaign we can change, that we can get back to talking about solutions for Canadians, whether it be the tax system, the regulations that Canadians are laboring under. You know, what I describe as backyard, back pocket issues. On the social issues and, and being open and being inclusive and looking for ways to make people feel good about themselves, we don't need to revisit or even suggest that we're ever going to remove constitutionally protected rights. And so for that part of this discussion, I I think you're right. People have turned the page. They've moved on. Nobody wants to go backward. We have to really focus on priorities. I think they're economic priorities. I think they have to do with trade, natural resources. Clearly, today's decision that was just handed down by the court with regard to the Trans Mountain Pipeline. This right. is good news. Mm-hmm. This is going to put B.C., Alberta, and the entire country in a better place when it comes to our contributions to the big challenges around climate change, but also industry and prosperity and growing wealth, growing the country. Well, let's get it going. Let's get it built. One of the things that uh, should have been addressed from where I'm sitting, for a lot of voters were sitting during the last election, was the reckless disregard of the current government for the public purse. And the fact that our our national debt, Peter, is bloody staggering. We are trillions of dollars in debt and billions of dollars beyond where we were told we were going to be once the government came to terms with budgets not balancing themselves. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, Sterling. It, it is a, a proverbial train wreck when one considers, and I take pride in saying this, that when our government left office in 2015, there was a balanced budget. There was, in fact, a small surplus, in large part in credit to the fiscal management and acumen of Stephen Harper and Jim Flaherty. And uh, we have rapidly moved away from that. And to take your description even further, What this does is it leaves an entire generation of Canadians indebted. 
And the numbers are staggering. It's easy to run up big deficits and promise people everything under the sun. And it's done clearly for electoral gain. It's done with a very crass political purpose in mind. And instead of governing, we are seeing this perpetual campaigning. And that includes making announcements, writing checks that we can't afford. And if you ran a household or a business, in that fashion, it would be pretty soon that the, the bank would be showing up at your door saying, hey, we're taking your house, we're taking your business. Mm-hmm. And so this is, this is a real problem, indebtedness and the whole issue around affordability. This is what Canadians, I, I think they need to be worried about. And we need to bring back some fiscal prudence. We need to bring back, I think, priorities that are, are much more in line with Canadians' priorities, not being bought with their own money. It's the easiest thing in the world to spend somebody else's money. You said it. It's taxpayer money. It doesn't grow on a tree behind Parliament Hill. It's taxpayers' money. It's hard-earned, and people should actually have more access to their own money, and that means lowering taxes and allowing people to and private sector interests to thrive. I'm going to bounce around on, uh, to a variety of topics, Peter, because our time is limited. This question, okay. does, this, this question doesn't hold as much weight in Vancouver as it might elsewhere, because to be functionally bilingual in Vancouver is to speak English and either Cantonese or Mandarin. Uh, in el- other places of Canada, it is, of course, English and French. We are an officially bilingual country. The question has come up, sir, as to why you are not a functionally bilingual person, given the fact that you've had the inside track as a member of government to some of the finest language schools on the planet for quite a long period of time. Sterling, c'est une question tellement importante, et je réponds chaque jour à cette question. Je suis capable de présente mes idées, mes politiques, répondre aux questions comme les questions que vous posez. Donc, je continue d'améliorer mon français. Je prends le cours maintenant. J'ai parlé avec mon épouse, mon famille, de chez moi. C'est, euh, c'est une question de capacité. Et je suis confiant. J'ai augmenté mon capacité. J'ai continué de, de pratiquer, de prendre chaque occasion, d'utiliser le français. So I'm speaking French uh, regularly every day. I was in Montreal last week. I, I'm traveling uh, and speaking French on many different occasions and expressing my ideas, my policies, my positions on a whole range of issues. And French language and other languages, uh, I'd say the same of, Eng- the same of English, is, is like a muscle. You have to use it right, or it will atrophy. And I've been uh, in the private sector practicing law, raising a young family, and I haven't been using my French the way I used to when I was in Ottawa. So I, I, I know the bar uh, for some in Quebec has been set very low uh, with the criticisms. I think people will be surprised by my ability to communicate in both official languages. Sterling Fox in for Simi Sarah, joined by Peter McKay, Conservative Party of Canada leadership candidate. And according to a brand new poll from the people at Ipsos, the uh, leader in terms of support for conservative would-be voters for the leadership race. Mr. McKay, uh, we've got some callers on the line that I'm going to turn you over to in a moment or two. But one of the things that I wanted to address specifically with you before that is uh, environmental policies. We didn't hear a lot about it from the conservatives in the last election. And I have a quote that is attributed to you, and I want to make sure it's accurate. Quote, the carbon tax system is not working. It's failing in a catastrophic way. First of all, is that an accurate quote? And if so, why? Well, I think it's failing for a number of reasons. It's failing because it's not a fair tax. 
people who live in rural Canada don't have the option to take public transit. They may not have alternative fuel sources to heat their homes. And so that is a catastrophic failure when we're putting some Canadians at a competitive disadvantage because of where they choose to live. A Conservative government has to come forward to answer your question with a comprehensive climate plan, but that doesn't mean a climate tax per se that is unfairly distributed. So we're making our country poorer, we're paying more at the pumps, we're punishing industry, and, you know, frankly, it's not working. It isn't lowering greenhouse gas emissions, and I would add to that, Canada's not the problem. We have a very low greenhouse gas emissions uh, with respect to other countries. If we're able to play in the market, that is to say, provide ethical, competitive, liquefied natural gas to places like India, Pakistan, China... Europe, other markets, mm-hmm. we, take, we take market share, we get some of those jurisdictions off coal-fired generation, now we're doing something. And we bring those revenues back to Canada and invest heavily in green technology and alternative fuel sources, which we know are, are becoming more and more accessible. Nuclear, hydro, solar, wind, and others. We will crack this climate change problem, and Canada can be a leader in that regard, but we're standing pat and we're basically just giving people a license to pollute by putting a carbon tax in place, which is harming our economy. All right. I appreciate that to comment. We're going to we include some callers going forward, and we'll begin in North Vancouver. Susan, uh, good morning. Hi there. Um, I have a, a question for Mr. McKay. Every single time a Conservative government gets in, they make cuts to the most vulnerable of Canadians. I would love to be able to vote Conservative, but for that reason, I have never, ever wanted to. I have a disabled son. I am a senior. And some of the cuts that you make and have done over the years are just horrendous. They affect the disabled. They affect the poor. And I'd like to know if you're going to change your ways. Thank you, Susan. Fair question, Mr. McKay. Well, I I don't accept the premise. Our our government actually increased spending on health care. We've done all sorts of what I would describe as compassionate measures in particular to support those with disabilities. I serve on the National Board of Special Olympics. I'm very sensitive to those issues of people who are uh, on the margins, who are very often unable to make ends meet because of circumstances that are of no fault of their own. Right. So I take a very compassionate approach to addressing social problems. I think we need to continue to um, burnish the reputation that we have as a country. That is one that cares, that helps people in need, and, and at the same time respects the fact that the, the best social program includes opportunities, employment, includes greater capacity for people to do more for themselves. And that means being fiscally responsible and setting your priorities having canoe subsidies or spending money in areas that really are not going to impact people in a fundamental way are nice to have, but it's the must-haves. And that includes, of course, working closely with provinces when it comes to the delivery. And so we have wait time problems. We have in some remote areas the necessity to have more equipment. Telehealth is one of the, the areas that I'm very interested in pursuing for remote communities, particularly in the Arctic. So there's been great strides made. To improve delivery. I'm very anxious and, and interested in seeing how we do that, and that's why I'm taking a lot of time, frankly, Sterling, to consult with people, uh, industry people, people in the sector that uh, are tasked day in, day out with delivery. 
And, and in some ways, it's, uh, it, it really is about government getting out of the way and allowing the private sector, I'm not talking about health here, but right. allowing people to do more for themselves. Should a government uh, in general do a little more listening and a lot less lecturing? Absolutely. And that doesn't just apply to the lecturing that goes on and the virtue signaling and the hectoring that happens in our country. It applies to our external interests and the way in which we sometimes have dumbed down diplomacy, sending tweets out that are criticizing other countries in a public way, whereas previously it was done much more subtly with more diplomacy. In my experience and estimation, that's what gets results. And that's what helps in some of these consular cases. The public shaming element, the, uh, the efforts that I have seen in the past to, to score political points at home cost us on the international stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of Twitter, uh, you and your staff seem to be at loggerheads over messaging lately. Uh, it's, it's, it's all part of the social media adaptation. It's all part of including social media in campaigning. Campaigning's changed a lot since you first got into the business, Peter. Uh, and of You're course, you, right. and you've got a brand new team to put together. Uh, what you see, you must take great comfort in this poll uh, from Ipsos today, placing you at the head of the pack. Uh, how do you view the rest? of the race. Are, we, are you expecting, for example, Peter, other candidates to come forward that we are not suspecting will be involved? Well, firstly, Sterling, I'm not taking anything for granted in this contest, and I don't feel like I'm running against people. Uh, these are members of the party. These are, in many cases, friends, people I've worked with in the past. We need to emerge from this, this contest, this race, united and strong as a party and able to pull together. Uh, the, the leadership contest itself culminates at the end of June, the 27th, but then we have a large policy convention, uh, bringing together with a conservative family from across the country to get together in Quebec and to discuss how we're going to prepare for the next election. So there's a, a several step process here. I do want to talk uh, substantial policy. I want to talk about things that matter to Canadians. And yes, communications is critical to that. It has changed. When I first started in public office in 1997, few people carried cell phones. That's right. And pagers. Nobody was spending, that's right, people were not spending disproportionate amount of time uh, in front of a screen uh, crafting words in 140 characters. So a lot of this communication has changed. We've had a couple of speed wobbles in the early days. I'm eight days into this campaign. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying the, the face-to-face time and, and time like this with people to consult and get their views and and figure out how do we do better? How do we improve things for more people in Canada? That, to me, is the bottom line of this exercise. Peter McKay, thank you very much for taking some time to be with us on CKNW on your first visit to British Columbia as a declared candidate. We'll talk again. Thanks, Sterling. I look forward to being back and appreciate your time on air today. Thank you. Today is a very busy day in the life of BC seniors advocate Isabel McKenzie. Uh, she's been working on this report called A Billion Reasons to Care for quite some time now. The report is the first provincial review of the $1.4 billion contracted long-term care sector in our province. The review examined industry contracts annual audited financial statements, and detailed reporting on revenue and expenditures for the last few years. Uh, Isabel McKenzie is on the line right now in the wake of releasing this report today. Ms. McKenzie, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. 
Isabel, it's Sterling. Uh, nice to talk to you again. Uh, this is all about co- contracted health care. So if I may, allow me to just read this into the record. It's from the executive summary of your report. In British Columbia, there are more than 27,000 seniors who live in one of 300 publicly funded long-care homes. These care homes are owned and operated by health authorities, private companies, and not-for-profit societies. There are an estimated 3,000 seniors living in privately run care homes that do not receive any government funding. Those care homes were not part of the Advocates Review, this uh, one that you've just released, uh, released rather a billion reasons to care. So talk to us about the 27,000 seniors that you do focus on in your report. And let's uh, have some of the findings, please. Well, what this report did was it looked at uh, where is this money going? The old follow the money uh, mantra uh, that can tell us a lot of information about what is the quality of care and, and where are people putting the resources that we give them. And what we found, we found a few things. So overall, we found that we don't really have a good handle on how this $1.3 billion is being spent. Mm. Uh, reporting systems different between, uh, different, uh, difference, uh, between health authorities there's these big buckets of money uh, swashing around for things like management fees, head office allocations, et cetera, that nobody really knows what they're being spent on. Um, but what, uh, and there's this whole issue about capital building costs, because, mm-hmm. of course, we are paying the mortgage principal and interest for a, uh, a care home we don't own, but we're paying the mortgage on it. So we need to be paying attention to that. Okay. So, but what we what we were struck by as we reviewed uh, all of the uh, financial information for the 174 care homes that were part of this review, which is 95 percent of the contracted sector, um, what we were struck by is how things were different between care homes, and so we tried to find uh, a pattern if we could, and the clusters that developed were. Here's what things look like if you're a for-profit care home, and here's what things look like if you're a not-for-profit care home, and they look very different, even though they both receive the same amount of public funding, and we send residents to either uh, for-profit or not-for-profit with no distinction. Interesting. Isabel, is there a third category, or are those it, the the either for-profit or not-for-profit homes? This review, the $1.3 billion, is uh, the contracted sector has for-profit providers and not-for-profit providers. And that's what the majority of long-term care in this province is. So identify the distinctions, because clearly there are many, between for-profit care and not-for-profit care homes. Well, the first thing that jumps out is uh, not-for-profit care homes are spending a lot more of their money on direct care than the for-profits are. So... Not-for-profits are spending 59% of their uh, public funding on direct care. For-profits are only spending 49% on direct care. Hmm. That translates into $10,000 per resident per year of additional funded care if you're in a not-for-profit care home than if you're in a for-profit care home. It's 24% uh, more is being uh, expensed in the uh, not-for-profit sector. So then we looked at... uh, the difference in terms of the funded hours of care. We all hear about that, the 3.36. But the other side of the story is, okay, we funded you to deliver 3.36 care hours. How many did you actually deliver? 
And that information, we find that from the information in the financials around the worked hours. Okay. And what we found was that uh, in 2017-18, which was the year we reviewed for this, we found that for-profit care homes failed to deliver 207,000 hours of funded care. The not-for-profit care homes exceeded their target and delivered 80,000 more care hours than they were funded to deliver. Then we found that for-profit operators generate 12 times the amount of profit or surplus that not-for-profits generate. It's 34.4 million in the for-profit sector and 2.8 million in the not-for-profit sector. Right. Then we found that for-profit operators expensed more than twice as much as the not-for-profits on their capital building costs. They expensed 20% versus 9%. I, I should clarify, that's building costs overall, the majority of which are capital building costs. And what that is telling us is we are paying the mortgages, the interest, the principal, the depreciation costs for the for-profit operators to a very much greater degree than we are to not-for-profit operators. And the public doesn't own those buildings, but we're paying for them. I was just going to say, is that was that part of the original deal? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of negotiation that goes on to arranging these long-term contractual uh, government to private industry uh, uh, providers. But would that have been a, a, a substantial part of the negotiation? Okay, we're going to do this with the money. Oh, and by the way, you're going to pick up the tab for our mortgage. Well, uh, when you negotiate the contract, all of those things come into what we call your global funding or your per diem. And to be fair, Sterling, an operator needs to be paid for the use of their building, right? right? So um, that's, that's fair. So mm-hmm. the argument isn't, and if the way we're going to pay for it is you're going to take out a mortgage and, you know, whatever we pay you for month, per month, you're going to put to the mortgage. That's fair. That's fair and reasonable. But what we have here is we have two diametrically different pictures between care homes in the for-profit sector and care homes in the not-for-profit sector. You bet. So, uh, and we know that the for-profit sector is enjoying both the profits and the high uh, capital building uh, funding. The not-for-profits are not enjoying the profit, and they're not getting high capital funding. So they're not getting paid for their building in any way, shape, or form. They're not getting paid for it by the profit they generate. They're not getting paid for it through funded cap, uh, building capital. Hmm. And um, so what we, uh, and we, when we look, we find, okay, there are mortgage rates that are all over the map. There are uh, interest principal and depreciation expenses that have no standardization to them. We have no uh, ability to know if we're getting good value for money. You know, if a building is worth $5 million, what's a reasonable rate of return to use that building every year? Mm -hmm. We have no idea because that's not how we're approaching it. We're approaching it. Tell us what your mortgage is, and that's the expense. Now, to be fair, some operators will have more mortgage expense, and and they will have a deficit. Uh, 66% of care homes are making a profit, but that means that 34% aren't. And one of the big reasons they aren't is that their mortgage costs are high. But these are private businesses mm. who could be taking a building that's worth $5 million. It might have a $10 million mortgage on it because they have borrowed money against the building to do other things. They've taken it. We, we, have, uh, we have no idea if that is going on or not. Interesting. The other thing that um, was a finding was the cost per worked hour in the for-profit sector was lower for everybody, whether you're an RN, an LPN, or a care aid, 
the cost per hour worked was what for direct care was lower. Now the 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 cost per worked hour is not a wage rate. It is the total cost to put somebody on the unit. Right. So it's I'm yes, I'm paying you Sterling, you know, to be here, but I've also had to pay for your vacation. I've had to pay for somebody else to be here when you're on vacation. Right. I've had to pay right. So it rolls up into this number. So what we found was across the board, uh, it's lower in for-profit versus not-for-profit. And when we tried to find wage rates, because the wage rates are, you know, obscured a bit in the cost per hour work, we were able to find a wage rate that was uh, as much as $6.63 less or 28% less than the industry standard wage rate that would be paid by any operator who's part of the master collective agreement. Not many in the contracted sector are part of the master collective agreement. Those who are are uh, predominantly uh, not-for-profit operators. So that is also an issue when we think about um, the very tight labor market that we have in British Columbia. Yeah. And that if you're going out with uh, a job offer of $16 and um, 35, or I think it's $16.65 or something, uh, compared to almost $24. People are going to be more attracted to the $24, uh, $23.48 an hour job versus the $16.85 an hour No job. question about it. Isabel, I'm almost out of time. I regret to have to tell you, but before I let you go, uh, and I intend to read more of this, I have the executive summary in front of me, but uh, to, to really dive into the numbers and so on. But I think what a lot of people listening to this, uh, some of them in, in rather uh, to considerable amazement, would I said this sort of boils down to, does this affect the quality of life of residents in these care homes. For example, do people living in for-profit facilities enjoy a diminished quality of life and service versus those who live in a not-for-profits uh, environment? Well, I think we cannot make a conclusive statement about that based on this report. Okay. This is a report about the, the financing and the money, Sterling. What I would like people to consider, however, is that there are there is whether what amount is paid for capital, that's a financial issue and a taxpayer issue. Yep. But on the wages, what I would ask people to uh, remember or think about is, uh, I think what we're seeing here is some storm clouds gathering that we have to address. Because if we're going to allow uh, contracted care home operators to spend, uh, to keep the basically the surplus between what we fund them to pay for direct care and what they paid it to deliver that direct care, um, we're going to create uh, some bigger problems around recruitment and retention. And it's really about incentives. You know, the care home operators, both the for-profits and the not-for-profits, Sterling, they have simply followed the guidelines, of rules, course. and incentives that are in place. This is not their fault. What this is is a result of a uh, funding framework and a, mon- a financial monitoring system that is telling us, I'm not sure we have a, a firm grip on this $1.3 million, a billion dollars, yeah, billion. $1.3 billion we're spending every year. Interesting stuff. And of course, when it's when we're talking something $0.3 billion, then bang for the buck suddenly isn't just a cliche. It's a very serious uh, question yeah. uh, that uh, taxpayers actually uh, should focus on demanding answers for. Uh, thank you for providing the framework for the next level of discussion, Isabel, because clearly some work needs to be done here. 
Yes, yes, I think that's very clear. Thanks for this. We appreciate your time and good work. Thank you very much, sir. The report is called A Billion Reasons to Care, and it is available online at the office of the BC Seniors Advocate, Isabel McKenzie, and we thank her for joining us this morning. Okay, so let's talk tickets right now, because uh, we are starting to see the uh, the tickets kicking in. They're starting to be mailed out to British Columbia drivers. Uh, more speed sec- um, intersection and speed cameras are being installed. They've gone up from 10 to 15 in the last couple of months. And according to numbers posted just yesterday, drivers received 7,353 speeding tickets from intersection cameras in just October through December. There were 15 cameras active in uh, November, and that was up from 10 in October. October. So to talk about this, a guy who should know, he's a retired cop. He is Grant Gottcatro from the West Vancouver Police Department, formerly of the West uh, Vancouver Police Department, and a regular with my good friend John Daly on Back on the Beat here on CKNW. Grant, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Sterling. It's a pleasure, sir. So all of, we're back to this. How long has it been, Grant? Because we've been through this camera business before. I remember cops having to sit in vans on the side of the road because it was determined unless at one point there wasn't a live officer there to witness the camera taking a picture of your car going too fast. It wouldn't stand up in court. We've been through this thing a few times. When did it all start? That was, that was 20 years ago in the 1990s. Yeah. Uh, the photo radar came out, and uh, the government assured us in the day back then that it would only be set up in high crash locations and never at the bottom of a hill. But of course, once they realized the money that it generated, then it certainly became set it up wherever they decided because uh, one of their favorite places was the 400 block of Brunette, which is down by the train station in New West. And I can tell you, in the 11 years I worked there before I jumped to West Van, that was not even close to being a high crash location. But it was good at generating a lot of money. Because oh, it's, it, it's a great street, uh, straight stretch to scream down. I do it myself when I do the morning show here, Grant. I, I just come sure. blitzing down that, that stretch. Yeah. So if this has, we've gone around the block a few times on this. Whose yeah. uh, brainwave was it to bring it back? Well, the government. <laughs> but, but, Certainly. but we saw um, it extinguished. We saw the program called out for what it was, which is basically a cash cow, and then governments realized that the the driving public was on to it and them and almost embarrassedly shut the thing down. Well, the problem back 20 years ago was their tolerance before issuing a ticket for photo radar was in some cases 10 to 15 kilometers lower than what the police were enforcing. You know, like in a 50-zone 12 kilometers over in a place like the 400 block of Burnett. Well, that was just, that was just generating money hand over fist. Sure. The current, the current system, the tolerance is much higher. Um, now, while it's not been disclosed and I understand why I know what it is, I won't say it, but it's quite high. It was about my threshold when I was on the job the last few years. So it's considerable. Okay. So, so the, at least the government's being a little bit fair that way, and they're also giving you plenty of notice. There's signs up saying there's a speed camera ahead, dummy, mm-hmm. slow down. Right. right. But the problem isn't so much that everyone's flying. The problem is the reliability of the equipment that's being used, and that's where the government is going to have a difficult time convincing people 
that these these I, they don't like to say photo radar. It's a, it's that's a four letter word. That's right. Yeah, you're getting a photo in the mail <laughs> of a speech that being alleged that they're using radar. Mm-hmm. So it's not photo radar. It's a photograph that's obtained by radar. So it sounds different, right? You know, it's a political nightmare. So they don't want to use that term. I understand that and I appreciate that. The red light cameras are fairly straightforward. Mm-hmm. You can you can see where you are. And I've seen the photos when I've gone to uh, court and I've spoken to some of the intersection enforcement people. The photograph shows where your vehicle is in relation to the stop line, in relation to the red light, so you're kind of busted there. You can't sure. argue that. That's right. But the, but the problem with the with the photo that comes in the mail for speeding, well, it's not a video. It doesn't show your vehicle in motion. It shows a stationary photo. Basically, it's stationary because it's it's a still photo. Sure. With a speed that's stamped on it, mm-hmm. and you're kind of going, well, that doesn't make any sense. I don't I don't even go that fast, right? So. Um, and there's two separate there's two separate rules that are in play right now when it comes to speed enforcement in the province, and that's another issue that I have is that the police officers are required to have a visual estimation if they're going to allege a speeding ticket in court. It's trained on every radar, police radar, and police laser course in the province of British Columbia. Part of tracking history is you have to have a visual estimation. Okay. Then, then the reading from the device. But the government saying in this case, no, 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 there's no need for a visual estimation. Remove the human element completely. Rely completely on the device, yes. Yeah, because equipment is never faulty. Yeah. Never has an issue. I mean, we have to rely completely on the word of, a, of computers because that's, that's the message they want to convey. So I don't like the fact that there's two separate set of rules when it comes to court. Okay. Who's making all the money here? You've got to follow the money when these sorts of obvious decisions are made because this is a cash cow. We have abundance of evidence to support that. So where's the money go? The city? The province? Well, it's going to go into um, the government coffers. How much of it is going to be divvied up to the dumpster fire of ICBC? I have no idea. Right. Um, you know, these, these agencies are, are constantly in the red. So, but the government is giving plenty of notice about these things. Their tolerance is higher before you get the ticket. There's signs that say there's an intersection. You can go online. You can go on the line and find where all these speed enforcement cameras are. Sure. Yep. The issue is, the issue is the reliability of the equipment because nothing is infallible, which is why you have to have a human element. It doesn't matter what the, what the manufacturer says. Oh, no, no, this is perfect. It's never wrong. Things go wrong all the time, right? And at the end of the day, if you go through an intersection and you see the camera flash in your rearview mirror, right. immediately take a look at how fast you're going and, and make a note of it. So that if a ticket shows up in the mail two weeks later or however long it takes, you can go, no, no, that says I'm doing 85, right. but I was only doing 55. Well, then you can argue that in court. And I was in court recently where that was successfully argued, as it should have been. 
Sterling Fox in for Simi Sarah on a snowy Tuesday, joined by Grant Gutkatro, former police officer in New West and West Vancouver, talking intersection cameras. And Grant, you were saying you were in court recently. We got the, let me just, before I, I ask you the question, uh, Paul's already on the line from Port Moody because he wants to jump in on this conversation too. And we'll get to Paul in just a second. But if you'd like to, to join the conversation about intersection cameras, lines are wide open as always, 604-280-9898. Now, Grant, we'll take Paul's call in a second but you have to tell us how you successfully argued down an 85 kilometer an hour ticket with a a photo uh, on it uh, and you knew the driver was doing 55 that's a 30 kilometer an hour discrepancy and you won how'd you pull it off well let me just clarify it wasn't a ticket i was involved in i just happened to be sitting in listening okay um, because the courts are open anyone can go into the traffic court and sit and listen to trials if you sure. want to um, the government is being very transparent here. I can't, I have to emphasize that, right? Like they're giving lots of locations about this. So they're doing their part there. It's just, they have to understand that this is a real political hot button topic for people. Um, so the intersection, uh, the, the, this particular charge, the, the, the photograph indicated 85 kilometers an hour, and the gentleman was adamant he was going, he wasn't going any faster than 57 kilometers an hour. The burden is always on the crown. Oh. To prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Okay. The burden is on the person who's issued the ticket that they have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And if the disputant or the driver provides any evidence to the contrary, then the judge has to weigh. And, of course, in Canada, the burden's on the Crown. Right. So if there's any reasonable doubt, it goes in favor of the disputant. So the ticket was $196 fine because that's the second tier of speeding offenses. Yep, gotcha. Uh, you know, one to 20 kilometers over is $138 fine, and then 21 to 40 over is $196. So the judge convicted him, rightfully so, for the first tier. That is the one to 20 kilometers over. Ah. So the fine got reduced to $138. Gotcha. He didn't beat it completely. He just had it knocked down to a little well, more manageable this number. Thing. This is why I'm saying you take a look at how fast you're going, because if you're doing 50 in a 50 zone and you're adamant about that, the burden is on the crown to prove that you were actually doing 85 and all they're relying on is equipment that, well, there's a different set of rules for the police. They have to have the human element. They have to have the visual estimation. I don't blindly trust anything that's electronic because what happens if the equipment was tested and it didn't pass, but the equipment didn't register that it had failed and it keeps functioning? Yeah. Let's, uh, let's include our callers here because Paul's been waiting for in Port Moody for a couple sure. of minutes on this one. Paul, go ahead. Thanks for waiting. I appreciate your patience. Well, yeah, I could see what you're saying about the judge. I mean, the judge probably gave this guy a break, and judges do. They're, they're yeah. really good about doing that. But my best advice to to anybody who gets a photo or radar is don't acknowledge that you've gotten that ticket. Uh, the, if you don't acknowledge that you, you've gotten that ticket, they will have to serve you another way, and sometimes they'll serve you through a, a, a processor. Yes. And they, and you don't acknowledge that either. And after a certain amount of time, they give up on it. And the best advice to, to, to is not to acknowledge it whatsoever. Don't don't send in a dispute because these photo radars are very difficult to beat. 
So the best advice, do not acknowledge it at all. All right. Uh, you're the former cop. You, you know the court side of, of, uh, of how these things work. Grant, <laughs> how would you interpret that advice? Uh, put it on ignore. Pay no attention. Well, of course, then when you go to reinsure your car, you know, the ICD... Sooner or later, it catches up to you, doesn't it? Well, yeah, the auto plan agent will say, oh, you've got this outstanding fine, and you will not... They won't reinsure your car unless you um, pay it. And because it's on the registered owner, see, this is the thing as well, and the government is emphasizing this, there's no points with this. It's just going to the registered owner, and it's just a fine. It's like a really expensive parking ticket. It doesn't go on your driving record. Listen, at the end of the day, if you go through it and, you, and it flashes and you look down at your speed speedometer, you're going, yeah, I'm definitely speeding, then fine, pay it. Right. But if you don't believe you were going as fast as you, they, they're claiming, then you have every right to challenge the evidence in court. And if you, it is, now, now Paul is right, it can be very difficult for a layperson. So obviously, if you're going to fight this type of ticket, you may want to consider retaining legal counsel. All right, there you go. Get, or at least getting uh, legal advice. One more call are, here. There, Malcolm there, in there North Bay. Malcolm, go ahead, please. Hi, Sterling. Hi. Um, I got caught uh, a few years ago, and I'm a GPS guy. And I got my Garmin, and I'm also techie, and I was able to take the information off of my Garmin, put it into my computer, went to court, and that was my evidence. It showed, it's, it's in terms, it's called a KML string, and it was able to show that, no, I was not speeding through that intersection. My GPS also, and I got the latest in Garmin, tells me every red light camera or uh, whatever camera it is on the face of the map. Now, not everyone's going to have one, but the bottom line is what your guest just said. Look, there's signs everywhere. If you can't see a sign that says red light camera, Turn in your driver's license. <laughs> Good point. I have to leave it there, Malcolm. Excellent point. And only a couple of seconds for you to respond, Grant. Here's a guy Here's a guy who beat technology with better technology. Well, it's called evidence of the contract. That's right. The Crown has the burden. The Crown can't argue that because the person who's showing up to uh, prosecute this ticket didn't witness the offense. They're going on hearsay. The hearsay is the photograph. All right, we'll leave it there, okay, Grant, because I'm fresh out of time. Thanks for the calls. Interesting stuff. And, of course, this one is far from over. They brought it back. So whatever happens, they deserve exactly what they got. And uh, we're in Washington, D.C. next in the Global News Bureau down there with Reggie Cicchini on the line. Reggie, we had a conversation about 24 hours ago that uh, I did not anticipate uh, talking to you about uh, as quickly again as we are today because yesterday we talked about the Iowa caucuses and how now this is the first step, and off we go. Here's here's the campaign and the vote. And oh my gosh, talk about a face plant. And good day, by the way. Yeah, good afternoon. I mean, this is something that I don't think that, you know, we anticipated talking about, but I really think it's something that neither the candidates nor anybody from the Iowa Democratic Party wanted to talk about. For either. sure. So let's talk about what the heck happened, or more importantly, what didn't happen. 
Well, I mean, look, what didn't happen is the caucus playing out as they had anticipated it playing out. And what did happen from what we're hearing, at least from the uh, from the developer of an app that was supposed to be used to kind of tabulate the results from all of the caucuses and all the precincts last night, something malfunctioned. The, 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 the input was put into the app, but it wasn't able to transmit the app. And because of that, uh, we're still looking at a whole bunch of zeros on the board for when it comes to who's leading in which precinct. And sure. we're, we're anticipating we're going to get some kind of result sometime in the next two hours. So still, at this point, you're in Washington, D.C., the seat of power and pretty much all political activity in the United States of America, and they still don't know what happened in Iowa last night. No, and the, the, the interesting thing is here, so it's, it's the Democratic Party is blaming an app. The app maker has come out to say that the, you know, the default is being placed on them, but this is the same issue that happened in 2016 between Bernie uh, Sanders and Hillary Clinton. There was a new app that had been used by the Democratic Party, and it malfunctioned as well, which led to some other chaos. So there are some calls now to say maybe caucusing is too antiquated maybe it doesn't work like it should and we should advance into the paper ballot territory i guess we'll have to wait a couple of years and see if that's the step that they decide to take well it's interesting because they had that discussion apparently after the 2016 version of the iowa caucuses which were seen as being kind of almost quaint and near primitive in their um, state given the sophistication of some other methods of determining candidates in other states and so it turns out maybe some of those observations four years ago, Reggie, had a little more weight than we were giving it in those days. Well, I mean, look, political conversations go in circles, and we could be having this exact same conversation four years from now. True. But I think that there's now a general push to say, look, the Americana of past needs to potentially be looked beyond, and we need to get into something that's potentially and, and likely going to be a little more secure, because not only is this causing frustrations with inside the base and trying to figure out who actually won last night, it's opening up doors to potential questions over election security. And, Absolutely. And what this could potentially mean for uh, you know people pushing conspiracy theories after. So there is fallout that extends far beyond just the the results of last night. Well, it's interesting, and I wonder when when you and your colleagues were together viewing the results last night. I know because I heard comments uh, just from people watching the results here. You know, this is some kind of prank. Somebody's uh, hacked into the system. Uh, it's probably not Russians. Probably a bunch of college kids. But you know, somebody is messing with things, and this is only round number zero. Zero, zero, one. Yeah, and that this information kind of campaign that started up last night is something that was really trying to be pushed back on by the Democrats by saying, look, now's not the time when we already don't have information to be putting out information that's incorrect because all it does is lead to further confusion and complications sure. down the road. But this is something that Republicans latched onto by saying, look, maybe this is because, you know, Bernie Sanders was gaining too much momentum and Joe Biden wasn't. So they had to try and figure something to slow down the, 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 the forward push here. And I think that's where some of this kind of uh, uh, nightmarish chaos started up because not only were the Democrats dealing with a problem, they were now dealing with the problem of their kind of competitors trying to make it an even bigger problem. Interesting stuff. Now let's talk about the aftermath because you know this is they had cameras trained on on the five campaign headquarters of the leading candidates and they were all going to take their turn once the results came out and then they were all going to jump on a plane and buzz off to the next stop. Uh, and, well, Amy Klobuchar came out first. Uh, with no results in sight and uh, made a statement about how great a time she had and she had to catch a plane. And then Pete Buttigieg did the same. And and, and so in terms of claiming turf uh, and voter uh, affinity that was unverifiable, kind of a risky uh, pitch, didn't you think? 
Well, uh, yeah, especially when you saw someone like Pete Buttigieg, who was actually picking up a little bit of steam last night to be able to walk out on that stage and say that he was heading into New Hampshire victorious. And just within the last couple of hours, he was kind of stopped outside of a coffee shop and somebody asked him, you know, was it a little premature to say victorious when nobody had any results? Right. He simply ignored the cameras and, and walked by in a bit of an awkward moment here. So I think there was just that sense of we need to get out. We need to say something because we can't focus on this knowing New Hampshire is just down the road. Uh, I think it was just a matter of get out, say something, and let's try to put it behind us. Yeah, and were there any comments made by any of the candidates before their departure in the absence of any information that were particularly newsworthy from your perspective? I mean, look, they all kind of said the same thing. They all kind of pushed that whole mantra of, you know, we're, we're trying to do the best we can. Elizabeth Warren came out and said, you know, this is what we're trying to do. We have some news. And somebody yelled back at her, yeah, you won. There were some kind of big moments that, you know, that, that caught the attention of everybody. But I think just the simple chaos and the sheer confusion as to what was going on last night drowned out any kind of message that they were actually trying to put across while on stage, while not admitting defeat, while being cautious to claim any kind of victory. Now, the, the- the contest in the Iowa caucuses yesterday, we were all trained on the Democratic Party and the who's going to be the, the winner kind of thing. There was a Republican Iowa caucus. There were the, the president, of course, unopposed this time around, but they did have the formality of caucusing on, on amongst Iowa Republicans. I am assuming, Reggie, I haven't seen the number. I'm assuming, A, they had a number, and B, it was probably 100%. Well, it actually wasn't a hundred percent. There were a couple of, uh, you know, a couple of, uh, uh, votes that went in the other direction that weren't for President Trump. But I mean, look, the president is essentially running unobstructed in the Republican race right now. His team has really done anything they can to squash out any potential competitors for the president, fearing that somebody might actually gain a little bit of support. And he kind of walked away last night, I believe, with 97 percent right, right, okay. of the vote. And, you know, he, he ended up, it was interesting because the president sent 80 surrogates to Iowa either to kind of, you know, drum up some additional support or to kind of drown out support for the Democrats. But, you know, this is a president who is going to win the Republican nomination no matter what and still needed to do a victory lap by sending all these people into Iowa and claiming that he won. Yeah, indeed. So now we talked a little bit about this yesterday, and it's very kind of you to make yourself available to us today because it was an unexpected addition to your calendar, I'm sure. But we did talk about yesterday because you are going down to the uh, to Congress tonight to uh, as a member of the media to cover the State of the Union address. Has the dynamic changed at all in the absence of real final results from Iowa uh, and, and, and how that might affect Mr. Trump's remarks this evening. Well, look, the, the the people inside the administration, some of the people closest to the president are simply still saying that the president intends to bring this kind of message of optimism when he walks up to the podium tonight. And he may focus a little bit on what is happening in Iowa. He was quick to tweet out by saying, look, if the Democrats can't get their caucuses properly, how can we essentially get to, you know, ensure that they're going to run the country properly? And while he may not be so forthcoming in his comments tonight, he may dance around the topic by saying, this is why Republicans are good for you. This is why Republicans need to kind of build up and bolster up their numbers as we head through the year to try and, you know, govern as I want to see fit. I think this is likely what we're going to hear from the president. But I wouldn't be surprised if we just see Donald Trump latch on to this building strong, growing economy in the U.S. and ride that wave 
potentially not talking about impeachment, potentially not talking about foreign policy follies. I think this simply may be the president's time to shine by saying, look, the economy's great and I'm taking all the credit for it. Well, and as he certainly has, right since the very first day of his administration, placed a lot of value on the stock market as a barometer of his performance. Absolutely, he has. Anytime it goes up, he says, look at how great we're doing. And when it goes down, he says, don't pay attention to the markets because they're not important right now until they go back up. The one thing we don't hear from the president, and we likely won't hear it tonight, is when he says the economy is doing so great, he won't mention that it's been 11 straight years of growth after the kind of great recession uh, that was experienced under the Obama administration. But the economy has been picking up because he was handed a good economy from his predecessor. That's something we won't hear. We'll simply hear that the economy miraculously started up wonderfully uh, in 2016 and has been continuing on for three years. Interesting stuff. Expecting to hear that. Reggie, just before I let you go, uh, what is the status today of the impeachment hearings? Is it on hold because it's State of the Union Day and everything just picks up again tomorrow? Where are we at? It is essentially. So senators were on the floor today and they were making statements to put on the record, but it wasn't in an impeachment mode. It was simply just in a in a legislative sitting way where they were able to talk and kind of have a bit of a conversation. They're trying to get what they want on the record. Tomorrow is when we're going to hear uh, the final vote. The chief justice will return to the room and we will actually get that acquittal vote sometime around four o'clock Washington time. So the president taking a bit of a pre-victory lap, knowing full well what's going on, just hoping that there's going to be that GOP unity tomorrow to to acquit him, fully knowing that there is not going to be 67 people sitting in that room that are going to send the president packing. So that and that's what it would take. It's not 50 plus one. It is is it is that other majority, that super majority that would be required to remove the president from office. Yes, you need more than you need more than three quarters, essentially. So you get 67 senators. There, there simply just isn't the numbers both on the Republican side and there aren't enough Democrats that are willing to go that far uh, to say that the president needs to be removed. And, you know, we will see uh, a hurdle cleared for the president as he kind of continues this race now down to 2020 uh, November. Curiosity question, Reggie, when you go down as a member of the media, in this case, the uh, well, you know, that media, the Trump, the people aren't particularly fond of. Do they take care of you? Do they hurt? you like cattle what's the experience like from the point of view of a reporter covering state of the union so the State of the Union starts at 9 o'clock D.C. time, but you end up having to go down a couple of hours early because there needs to be a security sweep. You need to make sure that any equipment that you're bringing in is going to be allowed. There's kind of a long lineup to try and get through and make sure that there's going to be room for you. If not, you end up in a holding room or you right. end up kind of standing in the media center uh, where the reporters uh, typically work out of the Capitol. It's it's a long process in order to get in for something that only lasts 90 minutes, and then it's a very long process to try and get back out. And our office is literally 100 feet across the street from the Capitol, and a can still take half an hour to get back. Interesting stuff. Well, it's a busy day uh, uh, ahead of you with a long evening. If the speech starts at 9 p.m. local time, uh, it'll be a long day for you, Reggie. Thanks for making room for us again in the wake of the, uh, I don't want to say disaster, but let's say confusion in Iowa. Anytime. Thank you. Great stuff. There's Reggie Cicchini from Global News Washington Bureau uh, joining us live from D.C. where he will be covering State of the Union a little later on. Sterling Fox joined by contributor Claire Allen here in the studio and we've uh, we've been talking our hot question of the day and Mm -hmm. we go back uh, I got to flip through my stuff here because it's all about the temperature in your home. We simply wanted to know and you can respond on Twitter at CKNW. The question of the day what is your ideal temperature 
in your house. Is it 10 to 15 degrees? Perhaps 15 to 20 degrees? 20 to 25 degrees? Or perhaps you're a heat freak and you just like living in, I don't know, 25 degree plus weather (laughs) in your house all the time. Now, Ben's been kind of tracking this. And the last time we checked, we had 47% on Twitter uh, selecting the 20 to 25 degree Celsius uh, range. Now, you did a little homework with Hydro. Mm-hmm. and you, In fact, you've done a lot of homework with Hydro. <laughs> but to start off with their recommendation for the ideal temperature at home. Right. So at your house, especially during this time when we see a lot of, you know, we have a lot of snow outside, colder temperatures, Hydro actually sees a huge increase in electricity I consumption bet. during this time. Sure. And a lot of it has to do with heating because, you know, people want to be warm and comfortable inside their homes. Right. So what Hydro is recommending for the the ideal temperature within your home, they're recommending to keeping it around 21 degrees if you are, you know, lounging, watching Netflix, Mm -hmm. maybe watching the news, just hanging out in your house. They say 21 degrees is what they consider to be ideal temperature, especially for, you know, cost savings as well. Okay. Keep it at that temperature, you should be totally comfortable. Okay. But Sterling... This issue of temperature, it's a real contentious one here at NW. It certainly is. And I've only been in just the last couple of days, and it's, <laughs> it's raging around it the office. Exactly. So there's a big battle brewing in the CKNW office, and it's not over booking guests for the show. Instead, the battle is over the thermostat. Now, Sterling, I'm on one side of this epic battle, and I'm a, I, you know, I, I box. I'm a boxer, so I'm used to a little bit of combat, okay, a little head-to-head okay. combat. I didn't know you were a boxer. I am. I'll, I'll, I'll consider that for, for <laughs> Don't future the snarky Sterling. remarks. No. Um, but I thought I'd introduce you to my opponent in this battle because oh. there's, there's only two of us that are really fighting about this, and unfortunately, affects the whole office. All right. Victor Young is the producer of the CKNW Mornings, and between the two of us, the office fluctuates from one temperature extreme to the other. Every single day. So Victor and I, we declared a truce this morning. Okay. Took a timeout. I waved the white flag. And we sat down to discuss our battle over the thermostat. Check it out. So Victor, tell me about what you do when you come in to CKNW every morning. What time are you coming in? So I'm usually rolling through the door around quarter to four, four o'clock in the morning. First thing I do, I make a beeline for the thermostat. I turn it up to about 28, 29 degrees, turn the blower on, and then, yeah, go take off my jacket and get to work. And so I come in hours after you at around like 8.15-ish, 8.30, and it is a sweat box in here, in my opinion. <laughs> and the first thing I do is I take off my coat because I can't stand the heat, and I go to the thermostat, <laughs> and I look at the temperature, which is like 28, 29, sometimes today, 31. I don't know what happened today. (laughs) And I crank it down, really, to like 23, 22, well, sometimes 20. So this is the biggest battle happening at CKNW right now. And Victor, when will you surrender? Or will I have to surrender? It's a war of attrition. And, you know, I'm fine with 23, 24 degrees. The problem is when I get to work... The show overnight likes it nice and cool, so they usually turn it down to around 20. And there are no heat vents anywhere near my workspace. So in order for that heat to sort of make its way through the office and into my work area, I need the rest of the workspace to be hot. So I just crank that thing basically as high as I can, knowing that it's going to take a while to circulate. But I'm also the guy 
who heats your oven to 425 when you need it to be 350, thinking it's going to heat it up faster, even though I know that's not actually how it works. <laughs> yeah, so don't listen to Victor because that doesn't work. Who turns the thermostat up to 28 degrees at 5 o'clock in the morning? Victor Young, you Holy just found out. Holy moly, Claire, that's really, it's a sauna for It is a sauna, out. but I'm so surprised that it takes, because you, you were here a little bit earlier than me I this was. morning. And I'm the only one that seems to be changing this thermostat. So by default, I am the warrior in this battle. I me and Victor. See, I Nobody see. else is doing it. Okay. So when it comes to thermostat wars, CKW isn't alone. Thank goodness. Uh, according to BC Hydro, uh, there was a release from this time last year. When it comes to the home front, Sterling, yeah. four in ten couples report fighting over the thermostat at home. You know, that doesn't surprise me. Do you fight about this? Well, it's been known to, uh, we've had a disagreement over the current status of the room. Could mm-hmm. it be a little warmer, please? Or, oh. or vice versa? I, I'm, yeah, I'm not, we don't, you know, fight, but uh, disagree <laughs> disagree over yes. the temperature. So four in ten, this is four a fairly, this is, this is an ongoing kind of stalemate. And thing. I will admit that I've taken my work home, the work battle home, and my fiance and I argue about the thermostat on the daily. And he's uh, prefers higher temperatures. He likes than the you higher do. temperature. And I will say, this weekend I had my future mother-in-law over and my uh, some of uh, his sisters. And they commented on how cold it was in our house. Oh, my. And I realized that maybe I'm on the losing end perhaps, of this battle. Perhaps, perhaps. It's just you. Right. So here's some st- interesting uh, statistics from this report. Nearly 60% of couples admit to adjusting the thermostat when their partner was not looking. Uh-huh. Uh, guilty. Guilty. I'm, I'm guilty. Guilty. Yeah. yeah, me too. Yeah. More than 50% said they have waited for their partner to leave home before adjusting the dial. Uh, guilty. Mm. And about 20% admit to changing the setting on the thermostat with the sole purpose purpose of annoying their partner. Not guilty. I just. I don't think I've done that just to really just upset her. I think you might have some more underlying problems there. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's interesting homework, though. Hydro's been very cooperative. For yeah, all of this. Well, they have some very interesting t- uh, statistics. And like they said, 21 degrees Celsius when relaxing or watching TV at home is ideal. And I think for the work that we're doing outside, which is mainly computer work, 21 is ideal for here. But Everyone tells me that I have ice running through my veins, that I enjoy the cold atmosphere, and my colleagues want to be much warmer. So we'll see what happens with this battle. I conti- I'm going to continue the fight, Sterling. So when, uh, now you said hydro, and you, you've done it a couple of times, and I have to do an old person he- thing here because I have an old house. Mm-hmm. If you're high, if you're if 21 is the ideal temperature to, ki- to set your thermostat at, yeah. I have an old house that has a Fahrenheit thermostat. And so it's 70. Yes. It's 68 point, 69.8. It's 70 degrees. My, I, I couldn't do Celsius on my, it's that old. You could figure furnace, out the uh, I, I equation. Could, I, I could, I could, but I don't want to. So, <laughs> so, and the furnace works fine. It's just the old, it's just got a really old controller. So 21 Celsius is 70 Fahrenheit. But if you're not at home and you're just leaving the house, you, you turn the temperature down. What do they recommend the nobody in the house except maybe the cat temperature? Right. Well, it might be cold for the cat because they recommend 16 degrees, Sterling. Oh, okay. Celsius. Yeah. So okay. um, I think what they really are striving for with this release is talking about a programmable thermostat, which uh, we have here at the office, but it has been hijacked by this <laughs> battle I between see. Victor and I. I see. So we could solve this problem. With technology. With, yeah, by using treaty. technology for how it should be used instead of us just 
cranking the temperature from one extreme to the other. Ah, okay. And they also, there's one other degree, 18 degrees when cooking or doing housework. So they say if you've got the stove or the oven on, mm-hmm. you don't have to have the temperature as high because the heat, the, heat. the heat from the, the stove unit and will... when you're mopping, it's, you know, or, or uh, doing a vacuuming or, or uh, you know, using the, the broom, you're getting a workout. Maybe ah. you might be breaking a sweat. So ah. they're saying that 18 degrees is good. However, you know, hydro can say what they like. Right. And I, ta- I talked to Victor about this. I said, what do you think about what Hydro's saying here? Obviously, you're in the wrong. I mean, this is the uh, official word. Victor said, you know, if I'm paying my bill, I'll keep it as hot as I want. So why don't we, uh, why don't we ask some of our listeners about what they do at their house? Well, because I, love- I-, I think we should. I think that we've been having a little fun. We just played What's This? Yes. Uh, and that was huge. Mm-hmm. I love that stuff. So let's open up the phone. Do I need to do the phone line? Sure. Okay. 604-280-9898. 604-280-9898. It, what, what temperatures, what do you run your life at at your house? And I'd also love to hear if they have a you know a battle with their spouse or their partner on this issue. That's what Claire is here all She's here to stir up temperature wars, thermostat wars. She's an agent of... I don't know, some insidious <laughs> foreign power. I don't want to cause any problems, but I'd like to know <laughs> if other people are like me. So how do you, do you have a thermostat war in your, in your workplace? Yes. Which is, uh, you know, it leaves more open to hostility than right. at home. At home, you have to live with this person. Right, In true. the workplace, you get to go home at five o'clock in the afternoon and swear about them all night long. Hostility <laughs> could linger though, Sterling. <laughs> a raging battle over the temperature of the producer's zone mm-hmm. here at CKNW, a very large area. Area in which, what, probably 10, 15 people work? Yeah, and to recap, Victor likes to keep the temperature at around, he said, 28 to 29 degrees, oh. which is nuts in my opinion. Yes. And I come in after him, and after I adjust to the sweat box, I like to crank it down to like 20, 21, sometimes 22, but I like 20, 21. So this is a battle that's brewing here in NW, and we want to know, do you fight with your significant other or people in your house about the temperature in your house. All right, we'll start right here in the West End, probably just a couple of blocks from here. Blake's on the phone. Hello. Oh, you won't like my solution. Okay. Um, it's almost like your photo radar thing, but I have an old. Ther- I have thermostats like yours, um, Sterling. I believe they're Honeywell. Yeah, yeah, it is actually. Yeah. Yeah, and they work very well. They do. But I tell you, just I, in a different language. That's all. That's that's right. But what I do is, um, oh, some time ago, I turned. I took the two wires off the back of the thermostat, put the thermostat up, um, back on the wall, the, the, and I keep it at 70. And pretty well, everyone turns it up to as far as it'll go. I turn it back down, and to this day, I have never heard a complaint. Oh, oh, that's okay. a solution. Ah, that's, that's, um, <laughs> fool around with <laughs> the I wiring, you, eh? Sabotage the, the opposition. <laughs> save, saving on the hydro bill has been unbelievable. Interesting. I'm sure, yes. Great to hear from I, you, Blake. Sterling, I thought Blake was going to tell us to put on a sweater. Oh, uh, that's always that's, the, one of the solutions I, yeah, out there. Yeah, it's, it's far too easy. Uh, <laughs> Sue in Richmond is up next. Hi, Sue. Hi there. It's hilarious, Blake, because very similar to my story. Okay. My husband, uh, my husband had a business uh, company with a, a lot of people, employees, and they would constantly be fighting over the thermostat. So on one weekend, he had a, an electrician install a secondary uh, thermostat that overrode the first one, left it as a dummy, and uh, they kept playing with it throughout the day, every day, not realizing they weren't making any difference at all. 
Oh my god! You should see Claire's face, Sue. Oh man, she's already she's she's already. This is my plan. There you go. Let's not talk about it on the air. I don't want to know. That's very slick. Very slick. Yes, great idea. And the workplace people got to have their little little thermostat war, and your husband got to run the show at the temperature he wanted. All's well, yep. <laughs> That's great stuff. Thanks very much, Sue. Uh, down to White Rock next, where it never snows, of course. Dan's on the line. Hi, Dan. Oh, hey, you two. Uh, well, first off, I just want to say Victor is a madman. Um, yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I work outside he's when not, I come He's home. not here to defend himself, so really just lay it on him here, Dan. <laughs> oh, yeah, there we go. Uh, but no, I, I work outside, so as soon as I get home, it's like it does, it, the heat could be off, and it feels warmer than it has been for me all day. Sure. So, uh, mm. so yeah, I, I like the place around 18, uh, this all the time. Uh, oh. My girlfriend would, would disagree with me. She's always trying to sneak it up a little bit, but... Uh, yeah, I just say put a sweater on. So now, no, there's there you yeah. go. There's the sweater thing. But now, do you? Uh, are there moments of friction between you and your lovely lady with respect to the temperature it's at at this moment? Yeah, how bad do these fights uh, get? <laughs> uh, uh, usually, it's when we're we're watching like a show on the couch, and all of a sudden, I'm like sweating, and I was like, "What the heck?" And go and check the thermostat, and surely enough, she's got it cranked right up there. So oh, yeah. I feel you, man. <laughs> this is the problem I have in my house. Are you thinking about you know what we just heard Sue recommend, which is like install a dummy? Th- I think this could take you over the top in this battle. This is a very clever that's, stuff. That's, I like that idea. Just, yeah. just something she can play with and then just pretend like it's getting hotter. Uh-huh. I like it. I might, <laughs> I might do this in my house, too. All right. All right. Thanks very much. Good Thank to hear you. from you, Dan. Uh, we have time for one more. I think we want to hear from Leslie next. Is uh, Leslie's in Burnaby. Uh, Leslie, good afternoon. Ah, good afternoon. When I went through menopause, I had a fan put over the top of the bed. Because I found it so hot, and my poor husband would roll up in the feather quilt. Oh, <laughs> he would get now it's reversed because uh, now I have only half a thyroid, and now I got the heat running at seventy-four. Oh, for crying out loud! That's re- seventy-four. <laughs> See, now you've got 70- an old thermostat too, don't you? Me? Oh, yeah, so I'm, I'm talking. I'm talking to Leslie. High efficiency furnace. Oh, really? Oh, With okay. a half a thyroid, uh, it's not quite working the way it is for your body for heat control. So my hands are like ice. I got uh, two long sleeve shirt, well, a long sleeve shirt and a sweater on. Wow. And I'm still cold. I got jeans on, and I thought, the heck with this. I'm putting it up. Well, good for you. I got it to 74, and I'm feeling not too bad. Well, great, Leslie. Thanks for calling in. And I forgot about the hot flashes part and how that would definitely affect one's uh, uh, desire for different Internal room temperature. temperatures. Absolutely. Yes. Another Leslie. One more in North Vancouver this time. Hi there. It's Louise. Oh, I'm Louise. I'm sorry. I, I, gosh. Yes. Well, uh, as I'm getting older, I'm going to be 90, so I'm, I'm up to 74 now, but I used to be 73. But I wanted to tell you a story about my sister, who was a teacher in Windsor, Ontario, downtown. Uh-huh. Uh, she was teaching, like, grade ones and twos, and she said that it was so cold that, it, that they set the temperature at that the children could hardly write. And she complained, and they did nothing about it. They had extended at 68, but it was up high. And so at the floor, it was very cold. So she got really smart. She put a wet uh, towel 
on the thermostat, and she got it up to wherever she wanted, cold, wet towel. Oh, well, there you go. Now, look at Claire. She's just taking so notes relentlessly here, tips. Louise, because, uh, you know, if that dummy thing doesn't work, you know, <laughs> just a, a just a damp towel. Oh, might, you know, I like it. And, yeah. you, and there's no alteration of any uh, I don't have to call an electrician. No, you don't have to do anything like that. We'll be out like of pocket. That. So that's very interesting stuff. And a little bit of fun on a, on a cold, snowy day when you're stuck indoors playing with the thermostat, <laughs> trying to find the right temperature for your for the for the day for your body for the people you share your house with but it's four in ten british columbia couples shall we say generously disagree yes disagree over over the uh, temperature in which they uh, have their homes exactly and at here at cknw victor and i will continue to go head to head on this oh this is this is not a disagreement This is a throwdown war. Yes. Thank you. That's great fun. And thanks for all the calls on a snowy Tuesday afternoon.